So tonight's Garden of Amunah class is about what the Zohar has to say about faith. What does the Zohar offer faith? And why did I pick that topic for this week? Is because, as I just mentioned a moment ago before we started the recording, that this Thursday is Lagba Omer. What does the word Lagba Omer mean? Lagba Omer simply means that it's the 33rd day of the Omer. We count the Omer, 49 days. The verse tells us from the morrow after Shabbos, and Shabbos over there actually means Pesach. And the Torah only has one day Pesach, so the second night of Pesach, which is in Israel already the day after the first days of Pesach, Chalamod, we start counting. You count seven weeks, 49 days. And then the 50th day is Chagah Shavuot. The word Shavuot means weeks. Now, so that's counting the Omer. But something else happened later in history, which is the reason why we don't have weddings, which is Rabbi Akiva's students passed away as a punishment for them lacking in respect to each other. <coughs> now, interesting enough, there were some students that did not die. One of those students that did not die is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rabbi Shimon, the son of Yochai. But as God would have it, he does die on that time of the year, but many, many years later. So when you hear the students of Rabbi Akiva passed away, and that's why we mourn, that has nothing what to do with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's passing away, which also is in that period of time, but at a later era. And he was a student of Rabbi Akiva, and what he's most famous for, I shouldn't say most famous, but what most people know him is for composing the Zohar. So let me straighten out some stuff here. I did not say author the Zohar, I said compose the Zohar. The Zohar is made up of 10 books. Of those 10 books, there are I think three that he wrote, Idra Rabba, Idra Zutta, and I forgot the third one right now. But the other ones were written by other people, but he composed them together. He brought together, he compiled it. So he compiled the Zohar, and that's one of the famous things that Rashim Bar Yochai. He has very interesting miracles, the famous story when they needed rain, he said, and it started raining. They're famous stories about Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai. So because Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai is associated with Lag Ba'omer, with uh, the Zohar, so I decided to dedicate this week's class to understanding Amuna from a concept of Zohar. What does the Zohar add to Amuna? What does it, what does it do for Amuna? And to understand this, we're going to understand a different concept. Rav Shimon Bar Yochai said about his day of death that it will be like a day of a wedding. And he said that he wants everyone to rejoice on that day. So much so that we take children out of school. Now please know that someone who teaches children Torah is not allowed to stop his job even for building the Bet HaMikdash. We don't take lightly the job of teaching children Torah. We don't stop school for any unimportant reason. We know our verse, uh, the verse tells us that from the mouths of babes, from the Piolim Yomkim, the words of Torah, you remember the story of Purim, Mordechai comes across three children, asks them, what did you learn? Children's Torah study is basically the foundation and the promise of our survival. We don't play with that. And yet on this day we stop learning, we take kids out into the field. One of the famous things they do is they have a bonfire. A second famous thing they do is they shoot arrows. And there's a reason for both of them. But what I just want to focus on is that here's very interesting. Moses passes away on the seventh of Adar. And Rav Shimba Yochai passes away on Lagba Omer. And the way we 
celebrate each one of them is the exact opposite. The day that Moses passes away is actually a fast day. Um, there's a custom that anyone that deals with in the burial society, once a year they fast to ask to do repentance in case they disrespected in their process of cleansing a body. If they disrespected the body, they have to do teshuvah. So what happens is they fast once a, once a year. Most, most people that work in the Hebra Kadisha in the burial society fast on Moshe Rabbeinu's um, Moshe Rabbeinu's day of passing, which is the seventh of Adar. Interesting enough, the simple technical reason why is because it's the shortest day, it's in the winter. But the deeper reason is obviously because it's Moshe Rabbeinu's yard site, so there is a reason to fast. So Moshe Rabbeinu's passing is commemorated with sadness. Fasting, it's a, it's a serious day. Rabbi Shim Bar Yechai's day of passing, famous Lagba Omer, is a whole day of joy. So much so that there was a certain individual, a great tzaddik, who lived in the times of the great Rabbi Isaac Luria, who the Kabbalist from Tzfat, and he would say Tachanun, the uh, prayer of Vidui, asking forgiveness every day, even on Shabbat. We don't say it on Shabbat. But he was so sensitive to any infraction in his relationship with Hashem, he said Tachanun, that special remorse prayer, even on Shabbat. When it came to Lagba Omer, he said, again, Tachanun. And Rab Isaac Luria, the great Ariya Kadosh, told him that Rab Shimbar Yechoi in heaven is not happy with you, and that's a very dangerous thing to have a tzaddik not happy with you. So you should go immediately to Miron, where Rab Shimbar Yechoi is buried, and you should ask forgiveness. So it's not a simple thing. The joy of Lagba Omer is very serious. A tzaddik had to ask forgiveness from Rav Shem Bar Yochai, even though he said Tachanun on Shabbat, and that wasn't considered bad for him. But to say Tachanun on the day that Rav Shem Bar Yochai asked that we should be happy, his day of passing, that was something that he had to go running to Miron and ask forgiveness. So here you have two opposites. Why is Moshe Rabbeinu's passing the day of seriousness, sadness, and why is the day of Rav Shem Bar Yochai's passing a day of joy. To understand this, we'll understand what goes on, the difference between without Zohar, without Kabbalah, without the secrets of the Torah, what does faith mean, and what does it mean with the secrets of the Torah? Because the answer to the question of why Moshe Rabbeinu's day of passing is commemorated with sadness, and why Rav Shimon day is commemorated with joy, is because they both brought us the Torah but very different parts of the Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu primarily taught us what we call in Kabbalah, Gufa da Araisa, the body of Torah. When we talk about the body, we talk about the Torah as a book teaching us what to do and what not to do. The Jewish constitution, the Jewish book of law. Moshe Rabbeinu primarily, when you learn the Chumash, he was not teaching us the secrets of the Torah, he was teaching us the methodology and the laws of the Torah. What was Rabbi Shim Bar Yechai? Rabbi Shim Bar Yechai taught us the Zohar. He taught us the secrets of the Torah. In the world of Kabbalah, it's called Nishmasa the Araisa. You probably recognize that first word from the word Nishama, the soul. So because of that, I want to just answer the question now, and then we can go into the Amuna part of it. Because Moshe Rabbeinu taught us Gufa the Araisa, body, from the body's perspective, both the Jewish body and the body of the Torah, which we're going to talk about in a moment when it comes to faith, death is a very sad thing. 
the body goes back to the earth. From dust you shall have you come, and to dust you shall go back. And then you have the aspect of the Torah. The body of the Torah depends upon the physical actions. Not only that, there's a famous, a famous story in the Talmud where we always, we always follow a certain sage's opinion in a certain area, and there's one case in which we argue whether we follow his opinion or not, and the commentaries say because he passed away during that case, and we want to know if his verdict was given before he died or after he died, because if it's before he died, then he's a soul in a body, he has a power of verdict. Once a soul leaves the body, as spiritual as it may be, he doesn't have the power of verdict. Because God gave the power in the body of the Torah to say what the law is, has to be pronounced by a soul in a body. That is why in the Talmud it tells us when the, when the angels asked God what day is going to be Rosh Chodesh, because they had to know what day is going to be Yom Kippur, God answered his heavenly court, you and I will go down to the physical court because law is decided down there, not up here. You probably came across the famous ruling, Torah loy Bashamaimi. The Torah is not in heaven. So we see concerning the body of Torah, death is actually a very bad thing. A, the body decomposes, the body dies, unlike the soul, which lives on forever. And so too in the aspect of the Torah, the body part of the Torah can only be enacted and judged down here. So from Moses' perspective, death is a finality in a journey. When we talk about Rav Shimon Bar Yochai, who's the one who's teaching us the soul of the Torah, he's teaching us the power of the spirituality of the human being, the soul of the human being, the soul of the Torah, the soul relationship with God. So then we talk about that the joy of Lagba Omer is, to quote the words he says in Zohar is, with one knot I will be bound with my source. Because in that aspect, looking from the soul's aspect, death is not a sad thing. If you look from the soul's aspect, the soul knows not of demise. The soul was, is, and always will be. In a certain level, a soul in a body is confined to the limitations of the capacity of the body. On an intellectual level, on an emotional level, on a cleaving level. So therefore, in a certain sense, the soul shedding the body allows the soul to go back into its capacity, its dimension, its perception of a relationship and bind and bound with God. And thus, from that point of view, Rabshim Bayachai had nothing what to be sad about. It was a culmination of an entire journey. Now going on to greater heights. So now that we understand body of the Torah and soul of the Torah. So now let's talk about a teaching that we have. There are three knots. I'm quoting. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling out a quote here. There are three knots that are tied one to another. And the three knots are the Jew, Torah, and God. More specifically, we're taught that the Jew through the Torah, connects to God. Now comes along deeper mystical explanations and explains that these three knots, it's actually interesting because the commentaries ask that how can you have three knots? 
if you tie together three things, it's only two knots. So if you have Jew, Torah, God, there's two knots, not three. And it gives the explanation because once you complete these two knots, God comes around and ties another knot directly with the Jew. And there's a, that's a whole different level of connection. That's where teshuva comes from. It's the knot between the Jew and God that doesn't depend upon the limitations of Torah. So even if you desecrated the Torah, you still you can do teshuva for what you did to the Torah because you have your own connection with God. Were we not to have that own connection, once we sever our relationship with the Torah, we're doomed. It's over with. But because of that third knot, we can always do teshuva. Back to our concept. So we're taught that there are two levels. There is the body of the Jew connected to the body of the Torah, connected to the body of God. Now, just to explain, what does that mean, the body of God? That's a big no-no in uh, Judaism. So to understand that, I just want to quote to you that our sages teach us in Jewish mysticism that the 248 positive commandments are the 248 organs of the king. The 365 prohibitions are the 365 sinews of the king. And when I say the word king here, I mean capital K. So don't start thinking of body. Obviously, it's a different dimension. But we say that. That the body of the Jew is connected to the body of the Torah, which is connected to the body of God. Then you have the next dimension, which is the soul of the Jew, which is connected to the soul of the Torah, which is connected to the soul of God. This is what we're going to talk about tonight in the concept of Emunah. So in the mitzvah of Emunah, we have the body of the Jew connected to the body of the mitzvah of Emunah, which connects to the body of God. But we also have the soul of the Jew connected to the soul of the mitzvah of Emunah, connected to the soul of God. Okay? So far, so good? You with me? What was the last thing I said? No, I'm kidding. So, let's go on then. What would be the body of Emuna? Well, later we'll talk about what does it mean the body of the Jew, the body of God, in this specific relationship of the mitzvah of Emuna. But for now, I want to focus directly on the mitzvah. What does it mean the body of the mitzvah of Emuna? So you have Emuna as an action, you have Emuna as a noun. Let's talk about a different teaching in Hasidus. With almost the same concept because it's the metaphysical mitzvah, it's not the physical mitzvah. A mitzvah of Emunah is one of the mitzvahs which is Chovat Halavavot. It's the mitzvah of the heart. What is the body? What does the body do? So we have love God, fear God. Those are not body mitzvahs, those are heart mitzvahs. So in love, we're taught that there's two mitzvahs of love. There's two dimensions of the mitzvah, shall I say. There's the action of love, and then there is the noun. The action of love means that we are in the act of loving God, which means that we're developing love, we're working on it, and we're creating it. So when you say every morning after in the Shema, you shall love God your God, what do you mean love God? Either I do or I don't. How can you command me to love God? And the answer is that there is a level of love 
which is the action of love. I need to work on creating love of God. It's an action. It's a commandment. Thou shall. Which automatically means I have the choice. If I want to, I don't want to. If I will, or I won't. And that's why the Torah commands me, you will. Thou shall love God your God. And then in Hasidus, there's a whole teaching on how to create love. And how do you create love? It's through the mind. Intellect. You control your thoughts. Take another example, fear. There's a prohibition for a Jew to be afraid to go to war if the war is a commanded war. Such as when Joshua went to conquer the land of Israel. So there is a law that you're not allowed to be afraid of war. Well, you ask most OBGYNs, and they will tell you that some husbands are just faint while the woman's giving birth. And that's why doctors hate when the husband's in the room because they don't know who to tend to first. Here's a woman giving, having a baby, and here's a man passing out. Because some men just aren't cut out for the sight of blood and the screaming. They're just different temperaments. Some are totally okay with it, and some are not. The same applies with war. Some are brave hearts, and some are not. You know, I have, God bless, six kids. One of my kids has a little cut, and she doesn't tell me she has a cut. I'm gushing. <laughs> it's just temperaments. So what kind of mitzvah is that? You're not allowed to be afraid of war. Well, this person is afraid of war. It's chaotic, it's bloody, and there's a chance of death. So the Rambam explains that when you have a mitzvah of loving, you have a mitzvah of not fearing, the mitzvah is actually on the action of fear. How do we create fear? And the answer is the brain. I've shared this with you from this platform in the past that the emotion is the pot, the intellect is the handle. You don't touch a pot, you don't move a pot. By touching it, you use the handle. The handle to an emotion is the intellect. If I control my thoughts, then I'm going to end up controlling my emotions. So if a guy's standing dressed in green, giving, getting orders, about to go on a mission, and he allows his thought process to say, oh, what happens if I don't make it back? I have a wife, two little kids, and what happens if they capture me and they torture me to death? Or even worse, they don't torture me to death, they just torture me to life. And what happens? And then your mind starts running, and then you start feeling your heart rate go up, and then you start panicking, and then you're in a full-blown sweat, and then you're having a panic attack, and you just committed a sin, because now you're afraid of war. So the process of these mitzvahs is the body of the mitzvah. When the Rambam tells you that this mitzvah of not being afraid of going to war is a commandment, something you must do. It's an action. The action is, thou shall control your thoughts. You shall not think of defeat. I want to share with you something very interesting. It's the previous Rebbe's diary. After the previous Rebbe was arrested in Russia for the underground, the KGB, came and arrested the previous Rebbe. He knew what he was facing. And uh, there's a whole book. The previous Rebbe wrote himself the diary in Yiddish, and it's translated in English. I have the book here behind you in the bookcase. Over here, it's called A, prison, a Prince in Prison. 
So you'll read over there that when he's arrested and when he's brought to the prison and he's sitting down and he's thinking in his mind, he starts thinking about his mother, who wasn't well at the time, his wife, his daughters. He's thinking about Chassidim. He saw the face of one of Chassidim as he saw as he was being driven away in the uh, armed chariot, you know, carriage. And he's thinking about all this, and then all of a sudden there's a line there. But I can't think about this right now. Now I need to be strong for what I'm facing. That was exactly the law the Rambam's talking about. Previous Rebbe was in a full-blown war of mitzvah, fighting to keep Judaism alive in communist Russia. He knew what he was about to face. And to entertain the thoughts that he was having would not be healthy. That is what the mitzvah is talking about. The body of the mitzvah is the action of the mitzvah. It's the action of creating an emotion. So if you say every morning, and you shall love God your God, it literally means to control your thoughts. It means to study about God, to study about the relationship of God, to control your thoughts in that pattern. That's what it means. So the body of a mitzvah is the thou shall do. That's the Moses part of the mitzvah. That's not the Rav Shimon Bar Yochai, the soul part of the mitzvah. So let's talk about Amuna now. What is the body of the mitzvah of Amuna? And this is, this is a, a tricky little thing here because so many people love telling me, oh, Rabbi, I wish I had your faith. And I try to pull out little Tinkerbell and say he wants it. But that's not the way it works. There is no, I wish I had your faith. Granted, I was brought up in a certain environment where my thought process was cultivated by my grandfather and then later by you know, my teachers exactly how to think about God and to be conscious of God. And it's true that many people are brought up in an environment where the word God isn't mentioned unless you're reading the $1 bill. It's true. That is true. But when you say, I wish I had your faith. So let's turn to Tanya. Tanya tells us very clearly what the body of Emunah is. And the Rebbe does so by defining the word Emunah. And he says that the word Emunah comes from the word Imun Yad. What does Imun Yad mean? Imun Yad means working out your hand. An artist has to work out his hand. A shoychet, a ritual slaughterer, when he sharpens his knife and when he slaughters, by the time he is a graduated shoychet, his hand knows the movement without his thinking. If you remember in the past when I spoke to you about this, I shared with you my very little brief encounter with martial arts. It was extremely brief. <laughs> and the guy told me, we were talking about it, and he said, you're not considered a martial artist until your body reacts on its own without you thinking. Because if you still have to think through the steps to a move, you're not a martial artist, you're a dead man in the back alley. But when your body takes on its consciousness by itself without the conscious mind thinking, but your body just reacts immediately into a position, then you're a martial artist. And what we're sharing over here is that every single profession has that. The artist picks up the brush. The contractor grabs his hammer. The hand, the body moves 
even if the brain is not consciously thinking about it. But why? It's just the act of repetition. Practice, practice, practice. And when you keep on practicing, 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 you have what we call imun yad. The hand just moves straight into the right position. That's how the Alter Rebbe defines the word emuna. To be more specific, there are neuron connections in your brain. For example, depression equals chocolate. It's just a neuron connection. We do it without thinking. I'm upset, I'm going to go eat. We've learned that since we were in a diaper and our mothers could not figure out what is bothering us. And of course, the Jewish mother decides if the baby's crying, he must be hungry. It doesn't make a difference. He just nursed for four and a half hours. He must be hungry. And at a very young age, we had a neuron connection. Something's bothering you? Eat. That's habitual. It's habitual behavior. If we keep on acting out every time we have a certain emotion, then before long, that neuron connection becomes an imunyad. The minute this triggers, without thinking, I'm doing that again. The same thing happens with the intellectual, or shall I say EQ, reaction to anything. There are some people that the minute something happens, they immediately have a negative interpretation. The pessimist par excellence. Did I ever share with you what a pessimist par excellence is? Well, the pessimist par excellence is when someone says it can't get any worse, he says, yes, it could. There's always the half-empty glass. Even if the glass is scientifically full, he's got a half-empty glass. That type of person has a neuron connection. The minute anything happens, he has a very dark interpretation. Then there's the person who's the exact opposite. The person who does not tolerate negative thoughts. The person who is the ultimate optimist. When the doctors told the Rebbe in 1978 that there's a 50% chance that the Rebbe will have another heart attack, and the doctor saw that the Rebbe didn't react, and the doctor asked the Rebbe, did the Rebbe hear what I said? And the Rebbe said, yeah, I heard you say that there's a 50% chance it won't happen again. Now, we can talk about this as the greatness of the Rebbe, as the Rebbe was born into this, which genetics play a big role. We know that everything is a mix of environment and nurture and genetics. It's not one, just one or just the other. But simply speaking, the Rebbe has trained himself under the darkest times of our people to always think positive. And why would the Rebbe train himself to do that? Because it's the directive from his great-great-grandfather. The third Lubavitcher Rebbe said, Trach good, sein good. Think good and it will be good. And that was a directive. So Chassidim are actually commanded in the teaching of Chassidis. Think positive. Now what happens is it's not easy, especially with people with different genetic dispositions or people that were brought up in houses that positivity was as taboo as, as pig. Some people just got a problem with that. You get very nervous when there's a, an optimist around you. So what happens here is there are neuron connections. These neuron connections create an outlook, create emotions. 
Now let's talk about what the Alter Rebbe means when he says in Tanya, Imun Yad, the word Emunah from the word Imun. The Alter Rebbe is saying that the body mitzvah of Emunah, there's the body and the soul. The body of the mitzvah of Emunah is a directive of action, telling you, you need to control your thoughts the way a horse is controlled with blinders and reins. As much as you want to think pessimistic, as much as you want to have doubt, as much as you want to ask the infamous what if, you don't. That's what the body of Amuna is. And if you keep on doing that, and you keep on doing that, and you keep on doing that, and you again keep on doing that, you created a neuron connection where your automatic reaction to something is emunah. So here you get a surprise letter, a surprise bill, a surprise something, and your immediate reaction is emunah. It'll be okay. Don't worry, it will be okay. That's the body. That's what Moses taught us. So what does... Rav Shimon Bar Yochai teach us. What does Nishmosa the Araisa teach us? What is the soul part of this mitzvah? There's a teaching from the fifth of our which I'm leaning upon as I give this lecture, that says that from the body we don't expect emotions. We expect habitual patterns. So don't expect from your body to be able to pray with deep devotion and feelings and, and epiphanies. From the body, we just want one thing. The body is a habitual creature. The Rambam writes clearly, anytime you change the body's normal cycle, you're opening yourself up for sickness. You'll know when you take a flight, right after the flight, when your body is messed up with time zones and everything, you're much more prone to get sick, much more prone to catch something. Because the body works healthy when it's brought into a normal pattern. I go to sleep at a certain time, I wake up at a certain time, I eat at a certain time, I do this at a certain time, and we know that. And the body automatically picks up that cycle, and that's why you know on fast days, your regular times for meals is when your body, your mouth begins to salivate and you've had the hardest times in your fast. You get past that little period and more, to more than more often than not, you just go back to normal. You're okay on a fast day because the body is a machine of habitual patterns. And that's all we expect from the Jewish body. Teach your body to function on the code of Jewish laws, habitual patterns. Teach your body that. You wake up, you put your hands together, you say moda'ani. You wash your hands, you, you just do that, the cycle. That's all we're expecting from the body. We're not expecting no emotional epiphanies, no spiritual epiphanies, no intellectual epiphanies. We're not expecting any of that. Just do what you got to do. Just the way a horse, when you go horseback riding, you know that the horse goes on a trail, and whether you do control the horse ride or not, the horse, 98% of the time, will just follow the trail because it's been doing that for the last 20 years. That's what we want from the Jewish body. The body should just be following the trail because we've been doing this over and over and over. You wake up, you dab, and you go. That's just the way it is. So much so that for those of you out there who are smokers, you will know that those who are Shomer Shabbat and smoke two and a half packs a day, 
don't smoke on Shabbos. Because from the day they started smoking, they never smoked on Shabbos. And the body just got used to that very interesting cycle. So try to stop them smoking on Monday, they can't. On Shabbos, they don't touch a cigarette. It's just the cycle, it's the body cycle. It just reacts to it. It's been doing it all along. But what is the Nishmasa Daraisa? So let's talk about a very interesting teaching about Modim Anachnolach. When we in the Amidah, when we say the words Modim Anachnolach, we thankfully acknowledge. There's two teachings about it. One is that a tzaddik's body from its own bows, and the other one is that you bow your body. When we talk about the soul of Emunah, we're not talking about creating anything, we're actually talking about getting out of the way. Because we don't need to create faith within the soul. The soul is a piece of God which believes in God. When we talk about the Emunah from the soul's aspect, from the Zohar's aspect, we're not talking about sitting down and meditating to create. We're talking about get out of the way. Because it exists. We just don't let it shine through. So the Amuna from the soul's perspective, that's the norm. All we need to do is remove the blankets that are covering it. Remove the layers. Or find a way to allow it to shine through the layers. So this isn't a habitual pattern that we have to do an imun yad. The soul is, by definition, a believer, the son of a believer. It, by definition, is the candle that's yearning to return back into the mother flame. The only reason why we wouldn't experience the soul's emunah is because we have turned up the volume of the noise and the static in our mind. So we don't hear it. Were we to shut down the noise and shut down the static, then the natural voice you would hear of the soul is the voice of Emunah. And that's why most often the Jew experiences that at crushing moments. Because when you crush the olive, the oil flows. When you crush the ego, the inner voice shines. And that's why you'll find by many Jews that when life is normal, they don't see that they have faith. But when things really crazy happen, when they're being pushed to the edge, when they're being crushed, all of a sudden they find an internal strength of faith that they never knew existed. And what's happening is that all of a sudden the shell around the soul is being cracked. And when that crack happens, the soul, the soul's shine can get through. So the soul of Emunah is not an action. It's not a commandment, thou shall create this. Rather, it's thou shall stop getting in its way. That's a very different experience. That's a soul connection. And when we talk about the body of the Jew connecting to the body of the Torah, connecting to the body of God, 
We're talking about the body of a Jew following the directives of the body of the Torah to create a habitual pattern, a habitual thought pattern, a habitual trigger pattern, a habitual reaction pattern that I react with faith. And why do I react with faith? Because many, many years ago, I held on to the reins of that horse tight and didn't let the thoughts wander. That's the action part. But the soul's experience, where the soul of the Jew connects to the soul of the Torah, which connects to the soul of God, nothing is created. Everything exists, and you just need to allow it to shine. I use this metaphor because it helped me understand things. I like, being, I like thinking in visual pictures. If you turn on the faucet, the water flows by the law of gravity straight down. You put on a little fan on the side, and the water is being blown off course. You shut the fan, you don't need to do anything to the water. The water returns back to its normal course. The soul faith is just its normal, normal law of gravity. The flame yearns up to the mother's flame. That's just normal. But then sometimes the wind comes and blows the flame, and instead of going straight up, it looks like it's going to the left and to the right. Sometimes it's so messy, we don't even see the flame. There's so much smoke. But when you allow things to be natural, the natural disposition of a soul is to be a believer, the son of a believer. It just is. There is no directive, thou shall create. It's the directive of thou shall get out of its way. Very often, as a father of children, you find yourself telling your kids one very interesting Yiddish phrase. You know what it is? Stop hocking a chinik. You know what those words mean? Literally translated means stop knocking a tea kettle. But what it really means is stop draining a cup, stop spinning your head. So the kid's coming up, but this and but that. And you don't answer the kid. You just tell the kid, will you stop hocking a chinik? And the minute the kid stops hocking a chinik, he realizes that he was hocking a chinik because it all really makes sense. And he was just creating some smoke around this fire, just hocking a chinik. End up confusing himself, creating a whole thing, and to answer him would be the silliest thing because there's nothing to answer. What you need to tell him is, stop hocking a chinik. On a faith level, when we talk to the soul, you don't need to convince the soul to have faith. You just need to stop hocking a chinik. And then you'll hear what the soul has to say. And what the soul has to say is, emuna. That is something that Jewish mysticism gives us. It lets us see through the complexity of the body into the simplicity of the soul. Even more than that, it allows us to understand that the life force of this complicated body is the simplicity of the soul. So while everyone's, I wish I was able to have a munan, I just don't have a munan, I'm so angry at God, I'm so busy questioning God, and this guy is so lucky, he's a rabbi, he has a munan, what a wonderful way to react in life, everything that happens, he's okay. 
All this noise is hawking at Chinese, but I'm not that way, you understand? I am more of the scientific approach. I, I was taught facts and rationale and this and that. A bunch of hawking at Chinese. Now, I'm not saying you're not hawking at, you're hawking at Chinese from the body's perspective, but from the soul's perspective, the soul of the greatest rabbi and the soul of the biggest atheistic scientist are both the same. They both spell out the word emunah. One was taught to stop hawking at Chinik, and one was taught not to. So if you want to tell me that from the body's perspective, the scientist, the atheist, is struggling with faith a lot more than the rabbi, okay. Why? Because it's all habitual patterns, habitual thought patterns. The science was taught to approach an issue from a different point of view. The person was brought up in a Yiddish home, living the life of Torah mitzvahs was brought up to approach it with emunah. And the beauty of the Jewish people is that the two do meet. But when you talk about the Rashbi's point of view, there's no scientist, there's no rabbi, there's no nothing. There's a Yiddish in Neshama. And the minute you stop hawking a Chinik, you feel and you hear emunah. And it's so amazing because when you read these books, even a Dale Carnegie book. And how to stop worrying, whatever it is, how to live a worry-free life. It's so amazing when you read that book. There's just a point where not the person created faith. The person just let go. I put it on God's lap. But it makes no sense to that. Everything that you've heard until now what you heard from the banker, what you heard from your accountant, what you heard from the doctor, all the horror stuff, it's still there. What changed? That wasn't the body of Amuna. That was the soul of Amuna. Somewhere by being so crushed, you all of a sudden realize, I'm just letting go. Letting go in Yiddish is called stop hawking a chinik. And when that happens, you just find inner peace. And of course, the cynic's going to ask, but what happened the next morning? <laughs> All right, the next morning we have to deal with again the whole process. But there's the body of Amuna and there's the soul of Amuna. The body of Amuna is hard work because you're creating triggers, you're creating reactions, you're creating habitual thought patterns. The soul of Amuna may even be harder because sometimes silence is a lot harder than talking. But the soul of Mitzvah of Amunah is to just stop hacking a Chinik. Just let go. Just let go for a moment. Let yourself naturally be. And when the soul naturally is, it is Amunah. And that's all for today, folks.